Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc at isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. to see you. Merry Christmas. Can you find the reindeer? I think it's in the dragon's mouth. Like I think he ate. That's why his, somebody was like, oh, it's like ruined your Christmas. There's, he didn't eat. No, you're fine. I know it looks odd. I know it looks kind of weird. Like maybe you're thinking, man, this is my first time here at Sunrise. What are they up to? This is pretty much what you should expect for the rest of the time if you're continuing with the song. No, we're actually really excited about this Christmas series. And what we're trying to do, and that word apocalyptic, what it actually means, we take it to refer to like end times, crazy war, nuclear fallout, all that stuff, right? Y2K, if you're old enough to remember that kind of stuff, like if it really happened, right? But what actually apocalypse means is to reveal and to uncover. And what we're trying to do is kind of pull back a little bit some of the physical reality of Christmas that is totally true and appropriate. But we're trying to go beyond the manger or behind the manger, maybe is a good way to say that, to the spiritual dimension of what is happening in the birth story of Jesus Christ. Because it's not as calm and as quiet. It actually is kind of like a violent war against a dragon. And we talked about that last week, and we're going to do the same thing this week as we talk about kind of this apocalyptic Christmas, the spiritual dimension of what's going on in Christmas. But to start that, here's what I want to do. I want to ask you a question, and it may sound like it doesn't really relate to a dragon and a woman in the sky dressed with the stars and the moon, but I promise you, I'll get back to that. Do you ever feel like you, maybe you can remember as a child the fear of the naughty and nice list. Do you remember that? Is anybody familiar with the naughty and nice list? You know what I'm talking about, right? If you're on one, you don't get presents. You're on the other, you know, you get presents. That kind of dynamic, naughty and nice list. Like I was watching this cartoon with my littlest boys. And so I was watching my younger boys and the cartoon was describing these kids that had this like paranoia and anxiousness that they may be on the naughty list. So they were giving all these like frantic apologies like the day before Christmas. And there's like this one scene where the other one's like, no, you have to accept my sorry or else Santa's not going to give you a present. You know, he's like, oh no, sorry. You know, I accept your sorry. <laughs> like all this kind of thing. And, and I know that sounds kind of odd. Like what's going on there, right? These kids thinking they're going to be like DQ'd from Christmas like the day before 
Christmas. And maybe you can recall that. Like as a kid, you're thinking to yourself, man, am I on the naughty or nice list? Like maybe as a kid, you thought, well, I did steal my sister's pet rock. Okay, I did that as a kid. I know, you're like, really? Are you qualified to be a pastor? It's debatable. Okay. But right, you get that paranoia of like, am I in good standing with the guy who's going to bless me on Christmas? Now, I know that sounds like, well, maybe that's what kids are thinking about. But I want to I make the point that I think thinking about our guilt as adults is actually a good thing on Christmas. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, we chose the wrong church. Like, why did I come here for Christmas Eve? I'm here, I want to be joyful and I want to be excited. And this guy wants to talk about guilt? Track with me here for just a second, okay? Give me a little bit of time because I think I want to show you how guilt is really the, almost the whole story of Christmas. Jesus, in his most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, put this incredibly high standard This incredibly high moral standard. Jesus said that it's not just our actions, the things that we do, but it's also our thoughts and our motives. He said we need to have the right intent and the right motives behind our actions. That even if an action looks good on the outside, if it's not coming from a good place, that it could be wrong. So Jesus at that point was saying that that lust and anger are evil. As are murder and adultery. Because those are the root of those evil actions lie in our heart. And so we have to have this more, oh, look at this. I stole this from Ezekiel uh, because I didn't want it on his coat. Uh, because if you ever wash, if, this is from our kids' ministry. If you ever wash this, it'll never come out. So, I, yes, parents, I'm telling you right now, Surgeon General warning Take that sticker off your kid's jacket. Learn from my mistake. So I told Ezekiel, I got it, and then I put it on myself. Sorry, where was I? Dragon guilt. Sermon on the Mount. Thank you. Right? So with that incredibly high standard, I think we would all say, right, we're all marked, just like I was marked by that tag. We're all marked that we can't say that we live a perfectly pure life. Like, I have to be honest, if I dig down deep, I know before I started following Jesus, I was an angry and bitter person. I was wounded uh, in a pretty significant way when I was young, and, and that wound really hurt. And what happened is I held on to that. I held on to it, and, and it turned into bitterness, and that bitterness turned into anger, and what happened is I relationally pushed people away. I became relationally reserved. I didn't want to be vulnerable uh, emotionally and relationally with anybody because I was just afraid of getting hurt again, of being let down again. And so that, that bitterness made me angry, made me un, uh, unforgiving, made me unwilling to reconcile, kind of just keep people at arm's length. That's who I was inside, angry and bitter because of some wounds that I had in my past. And I couldn't let go of those things. So by Jesus' standard, I was not pure. I was guilty. I was on the naughty list, if you will. But now, now, I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. Now, not because of something I've done, but because of Christmas. Because of Christmas, I'm not guilty. And if you are wearing any guilt, shame or sin, bad habits that you just let stick to your identity, 
I'm telling you, the greatest thing about Christmas is this. Your guilt can be taken away. And that's exactly what we're going to unpack today. The big idea of today's message, the main idea of our message today is this. Christmas clears the courtroom. Christmas clears the courtroom. We're going to see in in Revelation chapter 12, we're going to start with verse 7, that there's a courtroom kind of theme brought up about the dragon, about Satan, about this ancient serpent. And he is like a spiritual prosecutor. And he is bringing charges against you and against me. And those charges stick. We are on the naughty list. We are guilty. But something has happened that has cleared the courtroom who's taken that prosecutor out. A verdict has now been pronounced that changes our eternal destiny forever. Let me show you that. Revelation chapter 12. We're going to start with verse 7. What we looked at last week is we kind of looked, maybe a good way to say it is, beyond the manger or behind the manger. Right, that beautiful scene of the, the kind of calm child laid in the manger. Right, Mary and Joseph there, all of that. We realize when we kind of look to the spiritual dimension of what's described in Revelation chapter 12 is that what was going on there is the dragon, Satan, the ancient serpent, the one who oppresses us spiritually. We're cursed because of our sin and then we're put in bondage to his rule. He wants to devour that child. We talked about that last week. It described that the, the dragon wants to devour the child, devour the Messiah, The woman in the sky is the people of Israel. And Messiah has finally come. That's Christmas. And the dragon tries to devour the child. But the child is snatched up, taken away, and brought into the throne room of God. That's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now we could say we are victorious because Messiah, or what we said last week, the snake crusher, is actually the hero of Christmas. Well, we're going to unpack what that victory looks like. And that victory has to do with a courtroom. Now, in Revelation chapter 12, it's going to start with a war, a battle scene, if you will. And then there will be a song. But what I want to argue is that war is not like the warfare we think of. Of swords and spears, pulling a bow, unsheathing a sword, shooting a rocket, pulling a grenade and throwing it, right? Those things. That's the war of a courtroom. It's a legal battle. A legal battle that is fought by the dragon. Let me show you this, Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Then there was a war in heaven. So what's happening is, it's like the vision was kind of beyond the manger to the spiritual dimension of what was going on on the earth, the birth of this Messiah. And it's almost like now, instead of looking beyond the manger, now we're looking up into the heavenly places. What was going on during the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? From Christmas to Easter, what was going on in the heavenly places, in the space of of angels and demons, What was happening? A war was happening. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle. He and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent, called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. So now we get a new character in this vision or collection of visions that John is having in the book of Revelation. We're given this character, Michael, who's a a leader of angels. We know from the prophet Daniel that Michael is described as kind of this warlike angel or this warrior angel. He's a leader of heaven's armies, if you will. And he is leading a charge against Satan or the dragon, the ancient serpent, as it's called, Satan 
or the devil and all his minions or all his messengers or it calls here angels. And they're fighting this battle. Now it's interesting how Satan is described. He's called that ancient serpent, Satan and the devil. That means slanderer. That means adversary. And if you think of who he is, it says he's the deceiver of the world. What we see is we kind of get this kind of framework of what this warfare is because the way he is described, a adversary, a slanderer, a deceiver, we kind of get some clues as to what are the weapons of this dragon. We often, and maybe it's because of American cinema, we often read into Satan or read in this idea that his favorite weapon of choice is a sharp, like, pitchfork. But it's not. It's not a sharp pitchfork. It's a slanderous phrase. His weapon of choice is words. He's a deceiver, a slanderer. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the first time we see this Satan character, we see him slandering the character of God. He says to Adam and Eve, you know what? God is really holding out on you. If you go outside of his boundaries, outside of his rule in law, you'll actually experience something better. What is he doing? He's calling God's character on the carpet. Don't trust him. He's not provider. He's not benevolent. He's not compassionate. No, don't trust that guy. And what is he doing to Adam and Eve? He's deceiving them. You see how his words are his weapons. And that becomes even clearer when the victory song starts. He's lost this battle. Again, it's not described. We don't see the weapons, if you will. We don't see sword and spear and bow and rocket launcher and grenade launcher and all that other stuff. We don't see that stuff. Now, that's better for a cinematic portrayal of conflict. But I don't think that's what's happening in the heavenly places. Look at how the song of victory is sung. And look at the activity of Satan that's brought up twice. Look at verse 10. Satan's thrown down. Michael wins this battle. Verse 10, then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It's time to sing, guys. Victory has been won. It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. This right here, I think, is a clue of the time frame of this vision. The kingdom, the power has been given to Christ. If you've been on our, our journey through the Bible, as we've been reading through the Bible, you may remember very similar themes given by Jesus to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28. After his resurrection and before his ascension, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, all authority and all power have been given to me, the Christ. I think this indicates to us that what's going on in this heavenly vision, again, is related to the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. From Christmas to Easter, that event is happening right now or has happened and it has caused a conflict in heaven to be resolved a war to come to conclusion and now they're singing about this we have defeated the enemy well what was he doing how was he advancing on the kingdom of God look at how he's described and it's come at last the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of our Christ are of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses them before God day and night. What is this guy doing? What is this dragon doing? 
Now, again, in a, in a cinematic portrayal, we think of a dragon having the ability to breathe fire and sharp fangs, and he's eating, like I said in the very beginning, reindeer or something, right? We think of it like that, right? The carnage. But what does this dragon do? He accuses, it says. It calls him the accuser, the slanderer, the adversary, the deceiver, and then it brings up these ideas of accusations being made. And it speaks of it as is, this is his primary work. Right? Look at how it describes. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, the one who accuses them before God day and night. What is this guy consumed with? Accusations. Words. It takes up a lion's share of his duty, or the dragon's share of his duty, is what? To accuse the brothers and sisters, the believers, the followers of Christ, followers of God, to accuse them before God. It's almost fair to think of it like a, a spiritual prosecutor who's saying, okay, exhibit one, Paul Crandall is angry, he's bitter. That bitterness, exhibit B, makes him unforgiving, unloving, and uncaring. Exhibit C, this is why he pushes people away. Exhibit D, this is why he's not vulnerable and compassionate. He lacks empathy. And he's just listing off all of these sins. Because he's an accuser. And he's in the courtroom of the heavens making his accusations. Now, this isn't the only time that Satan's activity is described here. I want to give you two Old Testament passages to show you this is what I think is happening here. When he's being thrown down, it's because he's thrown down out of a privileged position he was in to be in the courtroom of God and to speak against the people of God. That's what he does. He doesn't bite and take up off a limb or something like that. He's not that kind of aggressor. But he makes accusations and he says, guilty, guilty. All of these people are on the naughty list. All right, let me show you this. Job chapter 1. Very interesting scene. Again, in Job, we're kind of peeling back what's going on in the heavenly places. What was going on in the heavenly places in Job chapter 1? This is what was going on. Look at this. Job chapter 1. One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord and the accuser. Interesting. Satan, which means adversary. This adversary accuser came with them. Next verse. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. What a casual conversation, right? It's kind of very interesting. Like, I've been strolling around, cruising down the street, whatever. Verse 8. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Everything sounds good so far. Well, what does Satan do? Verse 9. Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. Ooh, here we go. His words are his weapon. What he's about to do is slander the character of God and slander Job. He has good reason to obey you. What is he saying there? Oh, there's reason why he loves you. It's because you give him gifts. He only tries to be on the nice list because he's afraid of losing presents. He doesn't love you. He loves the gifts you give him. Right, look at the next verse. 
you have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. What is he saying here? You've bribed him. The only reason he obeys you is because you pay him. That's what's going on here. We see this. Look at the next phrase, verse 11. But reach out, take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. My older kids, Alexina and Paxson, 13-year-old and 11-year-old, this is what we're going through in our family devotion time right now. And my son loved that phrase. Surely curse you to your face. Wow, that's some strong language there. What is Satan doing? He's saying, you know what, Job, his obedience is shallow. It's self-centered. And you really pay for his affection. God, you're bribing him. This is what Satan does. This is what the accuser does. And some of what he says there is partially right. Partially right in the fact that, yes, Job is blessed. Yes, he is protected by God. Now, he's wrong, and we get that at the conclusion of the book of Job, that no, God didn't need to buy the devotion of Job. Because when he lost everything, he still stayed devoted. Another Old Testament account, this is Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, probably the first thing you thought of when you thought of Christmas was Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. But let me show you this. Satan comes again, this accuser, in this courtroom. Look at this, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the angels showed me Jeshua and the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. The accuser, there he is again, Satan, was there at the angel's right hand making accusations against Jeshua. Interesting. What is he saying about this guy? Now, Zechariah never reveals the accusations made, but we're going to tell in the next couple of verses probably what his agenda was, probably what his argument was. All right, look at verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, reject your accusations. Nope, I don't want to hear it, Satan. Yes, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. This man is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. There's very interesting imagery there. A burning stick snatched from the fire. That language of snatching from a fire is reminiscent of a lot of the language that is used by the prophets, especially in the Old Testament, uh, to describe God's judgment. So I think what he's describing here is Jeshua, the high priest has been removed like a burning stick from a fire, been removed from the judgment of God. He's not condemned and guilty anymore. We see that imagery kind of play itself out in the next verse. Look at verse 3. And Jeshua's clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. That description of now we're moving analogies. Instead of this burning stick in a fire, now this filthy garment worn by the high priest, which is a very interesting fact. It's not just a normal man. He's the high priest. See, in the Old Testament, there was this this concrete view of sin. Almost like you could see it. Almost like it had weight to it. On the Day of Atonement, we see this kind of really uh, vividly portrayed. Is that the people of God would confess their sin, and it described almost like their sin would come off of them and come on to the tabernacle. And as the priest was about to make a sacrifice, the idea is the people are confessing sin. He starts to confess sin. And it was almost like the sin that was coming off the people came on the tabernacle and then would come on the priest. 
And then the priest would come to the sacrificed animal and he would lay his hand on the sacrificed animal. And the idea was that the sin was transferring. It was almost like the dirt was coming off of the priest that the people had confessed that had gone to the tent, gone to the tabernacle, gone on the priest. Then it went on that animal and then that animal died because that animal now had all the sin on it. So I think what's being described here is this high priest, priest is filthy. Why? Not only because of his sin, but the sin of the people. So what is Satan, the accuser, saying about him? He's saying, my guess is, he's guilty. Because the Lord rebukes that charge, and then he does this. Look at verse 4. The angel said to the other standing there, take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Jeshua, he said, see, I have taken away your sins, and now I'm giving you these fine clothes. What do those dirty, filthy garments represent? Sin, shame, guilt, infractions, disobedience, breaking God's law. And God says, no, Satan, I won't hear your accusations. I won't hear it. Watch what I'm going to do. And he takes off the filthy garment and gives him a new one. What is he saying in that courtroom scene? Where are his sins? Where are his sins? They're gone. I took them away. I took them away. All you see is the clean garment. You can't see the filth anymore. Where did that garment go? Right? Is God a judge who can just throw away crimes and offenses? How is that just? It seems nice, but it doesn't seem very just. If he's just letting all the prisoners go free, who suffers the consequences for the infractions against God's code, God's character, God's law? That's not just. Who's going to pay for this? Christmas is going to pay for this. The birth, life, death, and resurrection is going to pay for this. Look at how Paul makes this very clear in Romans chapter 3. Think of that courtroom scene of what was going on with Job, what was going on with Jeshua the high priest, what was going on in the heavenly courtroom in Revelation chapter 12 when the accuser of the brothers and sisters just had a laundry list of all of our offenses, all of our guilt, all of our shame, and he was totally right. Like he was nailing it. He must have been thinking, man, this is an airtight case. I got exhibit A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I go all the way down in all the languages of the world with all of their alphabet against Paul Robert Crandall. I got him. He's nailed. There's no way out of this. But before the gavel hits, an advocate comes and dismantles what the accuser is hoping to do. The accuser is right. The accuser is right. But the consequence he's hoping for doesn't get achieved because the guilty goes free. A new garment is given because the old garment is given to somebody else. The sin and the guilt and the shame is given to somebody else. This is why Zechariah 3 can happen is because God is looking forward to Christmas. He's looking down the corridor of time to the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at this, Romans chapter 3. Look at how Paul describes this. And think about that scene with Zechariah and the high priest. Romans chapter 3, for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. Stop there. Think about when you read the Old Testament, if you've ever read the Old Testament. If you've been journeying through the Bible with us, you've walked through all the way through the Old Testament. 
Have you ever read the Old Testament and think the two words that summarize the Old Testament are held back? God held back? No, right? I remember first following Jesus, reading the Old Testament, I'm like, this dude's mad. Like, he's going after people. Leviticus chapter 10, they offer the wrong fire. Boom, they're dead. Wow, this guy had a bad day. Right? Come on, you, you can be honest in church, right? You can be honest. When you read the Old Testament, the thing that comes to your mind is not, man, God is so merciful. It's like, man, God is mean. But in Romans chapter 3, it says, no, no, no. He was holding back. See, we don't realize the weight and the gravity of the offense of our sin to a holy and just God. We don't realize how bad it really is. And the depictions of God's judgment and God's condemnation in the Old Testament are never his full justice poured out. He was holding back. He was holding back until one day he didn't hold back anymore. And that one day was when the judgment of God fell on God the Son. Jesus Christ, boom, took it all. All that was being held back, all of it poured out. Boom. All the filthy garments, whether it be the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3, or whether it be you and me, all those filthy garments taken off and put on Christ. Put on Christ. And now the righteousness of Christ, the new garment is put on us. Let's finish the verse. The sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and didn't punish those who sinned in times past. Verse 26. For he was looking ahead in Zechariah chapter 3. He was looking ahead and including in them what including them in what he would do in this present time. That's the Christmas Easter story, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus Christ. How can the high priest be called something besides not guilty? It's because his filthy garment was taken off and a new one was given to him. This is what's happening in that scene, in that vision. Why is Satan being thrown down? Because he's thrown out of the courtroom. He can't accuse anymore. The accuser of the brother is thrown down. No more does he have an audience in heaven to call you guilty, to call me guilty. That doesn't work anymore. Those charges don't stick anymore. Why? Because the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has taken my guilt and shame. Christ took every sin that was on me, that I owned. He put it on himself. And then all of his righteousness and his obedience, his perfect perfection came on me. Now when God looks at me, he calls me what my garment is. And that's righteous. I'll tell you, I kind of experienced this when I was like, I know we get really excited about when we get those employee coupons to go to the Columbia store. Right, you know, you know what I'm talking about, the golden tickets, right? Everybody gets really excited going there. I had this moment. I just got to be straight honest with you, okay? It's a very vulnerable moment. So if you laugh at me, you're not going to be my favorite service like you normally are, okay? <laughs> but I remember, so we got, you know, the discount. Got, somebody got us into the employee store, right? And, and I had this moment. I had this moment. And it's not, you know, I felt very Oregonian. Not when I changed my license plate or we were able to get a house in Oregon. No, not any of that stuff. It was in the Columbia store. <laughs> I literally had this moment, right? I put on this jacket. 
And I zipped it up, and I was like, man, I'm warm. You know, and on the outside, I look like an Oregonian, <laughs> right? On the inside, I'm a freezing Californian. Like, geez louise, does the sun not work here? What is going on, right? But that's kind of what's happening here. Yes, I know bitterness and anger, an unforgiving heart, unloving, unkind. All those things are true about Paul Robert Crandall. All of those things are true. But now I have a new garment on me. And when God looks at me, he says, that looks like my righteous son. Where'd all that sin go? Satan, you were mentioning something. I guess all that's gone. Because what I see now is love, compassion, empathy, obedience, a forgiving posture. That's what I see. Satan, the accuser, has been thrown down. Christmas clears the courtroom. Wonderful news. But also, there's a terrifying end to this story. Look at the very last part of this song. A sobering reality. That Christmas... It's cleared the courtroom, but Satan has gone somewhere else because he has no privilege of being in the courtroom of heaven anymore. His accusations won't work, but his words are his weapon, and he can still deceive. He cannot accuse, but he can still deceive. He doesn't have an audience in the courtroom of God, but he has an audience in your mind, and he says a lot of words that are not true. Look at how this song ends. We're going to read back in verse 11, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they have defeated him, this accuser, the one who's been thrown down, by the blood of the lamb, not by what I've done, but by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and by their testimony, holding on to that truth. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens. Now, if you've read through the Psalms and you've walked through those kind of biblical songs that the people of Israel would sing, this phrasing right here is somewhat familiar to you. Rejoice, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. It's almost like there's like this like cosmic conductor who's saying to different parts of the universe, earth and sky, heavens and earth, rejoice and sing. It's like he's calling them, okay, earth, you're baritone. You, you know, skies, you're soprano. I don't even know if those are the right terms. I'm not a singer, okay? Baritone, is that one of them? Okay, whatever, uh, close enough. Aunt Pastor Aaron will we'll clear this up later, okay? But that's the idea is the psalmist is like calling on everybody to sing. You sing this part, you sing this part. And normally what you see is they, they sing in kind of this, this, this unison. It's like their parts complement each other. I believe this is the only song in the Bible where that's not true. Where earth and sky or heavens and earth are called to sing different songs. Look what it says. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens, rejoice, be happy. Why? Because Satan's not here anymore. He can't give his charges against God's people anymore. Christmas has cleared the courtroom. He's been expelled. The accuser has been thrown down. He's out of the room. But then look what it says. But terror or woe, terror will come on the earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has limited time. He's mad. The dragon has been thrown down, and he's angry about it. 
He spent night and day accusing you and me that we were not worthy of God's love and God's affection, that our filthy garments disqualified us, that we should be out no more. But the gavel hit, the verdict came in, and because of our advocate, Jesus Christ, our sins were forgiven and righteousness was given to us. The gavel is hit, and now the verdict is righteous, and he can't take that away. And that makes him mad, and that makes him angry, and he is on a war path now against us. And his weapon, again, is not some sharp pitchfork. It's a slanderous phrase, because his words aren't heard in the courtroom of heaven, but I tell you what, they're heard right here in your mind. Because Satan is not that noise underneath your bed. He's that thought inside your head that you hear and you listen to, that I listen to. Paul, you'll never be more than your worst moment. Paul, you'll never be more than your weakest moment. Why would God love you? Those who should have loved you didn't love you. Those who should have loved you left you. Those who should have loved you abandoned you. Why would God not do the same? Look at your filthy garments. Look at your bitterness and your anger, your lack of love and compassion. You're not qualified for anything but God's condemnation. Those words aren't heard in heaven, but they're heard right here, right here. And you hear them too. I heard them this week. I heard them this week. Those deceptive thoughts of Satan I think he loves the way he's portrayed in 21st century American cinema. Scary and angry, crawling on things, scratching on doors. No. His weapons are still his words. Deception is his weapon. And he uses it in our thoughts and in our minds to tell us we are not lovable. We are not worthy. We are not of value. Even though we've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we put on that new garment. We look in the mirror and we still see the filth. We still see that filthy garment. And why can we not get rid of that? It's because we entertain the one who's been expelled. We entertain his words even though he's been expelled from the courtroom of heaven. What I pray this Christmas season is you don't let him in here. You don't listen to those words. They're deceptive because the thing is they're partially true. They're partially true. We're all on the naughty list. If the standard of the Sermon on the Mount is true and that's what we hold ourselves to, I'm telling you what, we're all on the naughty list. There's only one guy on the nice list and his name is Jesus Christ. But the beautiful exchange of God is the only way to get everybody who was on the naughty list over to the nice list is to get the one person who deserved to be on the nice list to take the burden of all the naughty lists. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He's made that beautiful exchange. And the only reason we can't see that in ourselves is because we listen to the words of Satan in our minds. But the accuser friend has been thrown down. So throw him out. Throw him out. Because God doesn't put any of you on the shelf and say, I can't use you. You're not valuable. No, we put ourselves on the shelf. I can't be used. God can't use me. God can't do things through me. Man, all I am is my alcoholism. 
All I am is my addiction. All I am is my lust. All I am is my anger. All I am is my bitterness. That sounds like the accuser, doesn't it? And God's not listening to him. So why are you listening to him? He has spoken so much louder with the term righteousness. And you know what happens when God speaks? Things change. God spoke into darkness and said, let there be light. What happened? Light happened. Light happened. That's not a descriptive term. That's a predictive term. God didn't see light and be like, whoa, light. No. He said, light. Then light came. You know what happens when he calls you righteous? You start to become righteous. When you put on that nice Columbia Omnitech warm thing, you start to be a little P&W. Drinking your organic single roast coffee, right? Light roast, of course, especially from the countries of like Africa, Ethiopia, you know, that, that's the good stuff. If you want to know what to buy Pastor Paul for Christmas, Africa coffee, okay? Single origin coffee, don't blend it, come on. And light roast, don't burn the beans, that's just terrible, right? Don't I sound, I sound like I'm from Oregon, don't I? I'm telling you, the jacket is infused, like it's all grabbed in now. Now it's just, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start having chickens in my backyard and berries and all that other stuff, right? You guys and your chickens, this is so weird. I was like, what in the world? But I love it, right? But that's what, that's what happens. We start, it's a transformative word. God says righteous and you become what he says you are. But he always sees you as righteous. Now, I wish I could tell you, I really do, that I have totally overcome what I like to call my besetting sin of bitterness. I haven't. It's still there. We went through this just amazingly awesome. I mean, God just blessed it. And you've been hearing us talk about this. We're launching it to the entire church in January. But we as a staff went through this 10-week discipleship journey. And in about week five, I think it was, we started to talk about the strongholds in our life, the lies of Satan that we listened to that we entertain and we let just kind of like stick to us and form my identity. And I confessed to the staff, I was like, you know what I've realized, man, I, I have a besetting sin of bitterness. That is in me, man. I'm not forgiving and I'm not loving because I'm holding on to these wounds. These wounds, how people have hurt me and I've just let that wound fester and then it just goes out and hurts other people. And I, I, I need, I need you to help me with that. I need you to speak into that. I'm not in bondage to that anymore. That is not my identity, but it is my struggle. It is my burden to bear. But God, other people can help me bear that burden. And knowing it's there helps me battle that and helps my brothers and sisters battle that with me. That transformation right there, man, I'm telling you, if you need to hear the words of Christ, be around other brothers and sisters to hear the verdict about you. Because maybe it's not loud enough in here. But from another brother, it might be loud enough in here. They can get it to your ear and say, you are not your weakest moment. You are not your worst habit. You are righteous in Jesus Christ. I got to experience this uh, on Monday. And I, and I had to share it to you. Once we, we went through it, I was like, man, we got to share this. And the team agreed, we got to share this. We've been running these, this 10-week discipleship journey kind of as a pilot program. 18 of our staff did it, and then about 26, 27 people, we did a couple of groups, and we did this celebration on Monday, and man, it was powerful. It was powerful. And what it showed is people were showing their life change. How we did it is they wrote down kind of their struggle and their burden on one side of a piece of cardboard. Mine was that I, was, I had bondage to bitterness, 
And then they flipped that around. But with this journey of Christ, I found freedom to forgive and to love. That's what mine was. But I got to see 26 other people say what theirs was. And I thought, man, I want to share this with you. I want to celebrate with you. So in a moment, we're going to see that. But friend, if you're looking for freedom, if you're looking to expel Satan's words out of your mind, let the Christmas season remind you, you are righteous and the courtroom has been cleared. The enemy has been thrown down. Stop entertaining the one who's been expelled from heaven. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. Oh, Father, we thank you. Christ, we thank you for your victory. We thank you that, that because of what you did in coming to earth, Christmas to Easter, your birth, life, death, and resurrection and ascension has changed this cosmic battle. This battle that wasn't like physical warfare, but it was a legal battle. And now the legal battle has been won. And my case, the case against Paul Robert Crandall, man, was exhaustive. Binder after binder, page after page. So many infractions, so many commands broken, so much iniquity. But then my advocate came and said, all of that is true. All your accusations are right, but I rebuke you, Satan, because I'm giving this one a new garment. I'm giving him a new name. I'm giving him a new title. And it's not guilty. It's righteous. And I'll take the title of guilty. Christ, I thank you. You are my victor. You are my warrior king. You are the snake crusher. And you are my advocate. I love Christmas. I love what you've done for us. Holy Spirit, help us fight the thoughts in our head. The destructive patterns and the, the rhythm, rhythmic words we kind of repeat to ourselves just every week. The false things we say about ourselves. Let us not believe those anymore. They're not true. Satan is a deceiver. Holy Spirit, let us not be deceived. Give us freedom this Christmas. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.